This show is all about opening our minds to ideas and perspectives that help us to evolve as leaders. In the last decade, many unsettling and unexpected events have challenged our assumption about our world and our place in it. Of course, previous generations have faced their own versions of uncertainty, but we have new challenges that extend beyond the comprehension of even the smartest, most well-informed of us. So what does that mean for the type of leadership we need to develop? Perhaps it means engaging in topics and subject areas where we might once have thought as being irrelevant, not for me. But in a non-linear world where the unexpected is increasingly likely, is it wise to define our perspective too tightly or hold on to our sense of value based on our identity when that identity may need to be revised several times in the coming decades? No one knows how climate change or artificial intelligence will change our world. As Ciela Hartenoff, our guest on this show, suggests, we're not just living in a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world anymore. We're living in an emergent world, where prediction isn't enough, where we need to evolve in real time with the world as it changes. So we're really excited to kick off Season 5 of The Evolving Leader with Ciela and her challenge to think differently about leadership in an emergent world. Welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast, the show born from the belief that we need deeper and more committed leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. I'm Scott Allender, co-host of the show, along with leadership expert and my friend, Mr. John Gomes. John, how are you feeling today? I am feeling uh, abundant. I have had a, a really interesting day talking to um, a, a colleague of ours who's a neuroscientist in University College London, uh, and it's left me feeling very excited about uh, new possibilities. So that's great. How are you feeling, Scott? Mm. I'm feeling over-caffeinated today. I, uh, <laughs> I woke up about 3 a.m., couldn't go back to sleep, so I've just been uh, keep pouring the coffee this morning. So uh, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, amped up, but hopefully that'll make for a good show. Uh, and I'm feeling like today I'd like you to do the honor of introducing our guest. So I'll hand to you if you don't mind. Well, I'd be happy to. Today we're joined by Ciela Hartanov. Ciela uh, has a doctorate in culture and human behavior and has applied her knowledge of human behavior to tech organizations for almost two decades. Um, she currently runs Hum Collective, a boutique strategy and innovation firm. Ciela was part of the founding team of the Google School for Leaders and head of Next Practice Innovation and Strategy at Google, where she developed projects designed to help shape the future of work. She's an expert in creating organizations that are more effective, wise, and future ready. And she's passionate about unlocking human potential to embrace complexity and build more resilient, open, and sensitive organizations. Ciela, welcome to The Evolving Leader. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show, Ciela. Uh, how are you feeling today? Ah, it's a great question. I'm feeling joyful. I just was able to see mm. a, a lovely friend of mine, and we went through a walk through the forest and had a lovely lunch. So it's it's really joyful oh. to be in community with people you care about. That sounds wonderful. So 
Let's start by getting a little bit more about your your background, expand upon the introduction that John just gave us. Um, so tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work, if you don't mind. Yeah, happy to. So I'm sort of, I sit at the intersection of futurism and organization development and effectiveness, and this is a unique combination. It's something I stumbled into. Um, there's no there's no doctorate degree in this, but I stumbled into it because as I was doing organization development work, leadership development work, what became really clear to me is a lot of the tried and true methods that we have been using weren't working anymore, and I would continue to argue that point. So I embarked on this this idea that maybe there was a different way, and I started using tools of futurism to think about how is the world reshaping and then applying those to as we think about the human part of the organization. So that's my real passion is sort of putting those things together. And that's that's always what I do in my work. And secondarily, what is sort of not spoken to in my bio is I think all of us need to become better equipped to manage uncertainty, to manage complexity. And that all that really means we all need to be better at perceiving, becoming better futurists. So I have a very strong belief that when we are working as consultants or inside an organization, we need to teach people to be better sense makers. It's not enough now for a management consulting firm to give you the answers and say, here's what's happening in the future and Mm. let me tell you what to do. No, we need to be learning and growing together and becoming better sense makers, all of us. That's how we're going to solve and unlock the real big challenges before us. So... The future is incredibly demanding and uncertainty. I mean, it's, it's been said for years and years by, by people like yes. us that, that, that the uncertainty is rising. But in the last decade, we've had a, a series of unbelievable shocks and distressing events. Um, so it does feel like the uh, assumptions of the past are really called into question about how organizations work, even even the future of capitalism and, and how it's currently structured. So, That's right. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about um, how you build a mindset to face uncertainty? How do you stay open to all of those things when you know, a lot of that stuff is closing us down? It's a great question. I, I think there's a couple ways into this, this, this question, which is the first part is just biologically. How do human beings handle uncertainty or not? And how do we hack some of our biological predispositions? Because Uncertainty is really not the friend of our of our brain. Cognitively, it's really challenging for us to handle uncertainty. So because we're in these heightened levels of uncertainty, ambiguity, it's really pushing us against some of our biological edges. So we need to be clear about that and, and work with that. And I know if you're studying neuroscience, we know that, right? We know that there's some edges cognitively that we need to start building different ways and habits to sort of hack that. So that's one piece around when I think about a mindset of being able to handle uncertainty, I think about biologically where are some of the the barriers and then how do we overcome those. So that's the first part. The second part I would say is so much of our mindsets are built in, in context. So we build mindsets in response to situations to we we learn something and then we make a pattern around that and then it becomes our truth or our mindset so we need to think about what organ what organizations look like or what con the context looks like 
and make sure that those contexts are enabling us to have a mindset that's more open and handling of uncertainty. And I would argue strongly actually right now that most organizations are not set up for this because mindset has a mindset that embraces uncertainty has to also embrace the fact that there's limited truths that play and curiosity is just as value as productivity measures and efficiency. And so you can see that we've set up organizations and systems that sort of disallow the mindset of embracing uncertainty to flourish. So that's one piece. And then the second piece, I, or the third piece, I would also argue, of course, is that there's, there's this thing that happens inside of learning and development that I've seen is that we are so skill-based focused that we go to immediately, what is the skill we need to teach people? We need to turn that around and say, what is the mindset that matters here? And that's a more psychological conversation to look at the psychology of human beings. And in human behavior, of course, we're always looking at the psychology, but I think um, we need to put that as more primary as well and really think about the psychology of human beings and, and why we hold a mindset or why we don't. I love what you're saying. And and to be aware of one's mindset is predicated on a high level of self-awareness. So how do you help individuals become cognizant of the kind of mindset they're currently holding? You know, self-awareness is such an interesting conversation to me because we talk about it so much when we talk about development, right? We say like the first inroad in to being an effective leader is self-awareness. Um, growth comes from self-awareness. But I think the latest statistic that I read is that only 15% of people are actually self-aware. Right. So, right. so I've been giving this a lot of thought, actually, because I'm writing a book right now. And one piece of this is about how do you become more of what I call a sensing self so how do we perceive better? Um, and part of that, of course, is self-awareness. But what I've really come to is that we actually can't be self-aware w- without other people, without the context of other people mm-hmm. reflecting us back and mirroring us back. So to answer your question simply, what I would say is that we have to do a better job of receiving and, un- and absorbing what other people see about us and integrating that into our self-concept. Otherwise, it's mm. just us and us making up assumptions about who we are. Can we can we just explore that for a moment in terms of the age-old problem of um, feedback um, and how yeah. problematic it is, is it getting a gift? it, receiving it? Is that it? the yeah. question? <laughs> no, well, I mean, <laughs> you can argue that. But I mean, it, it, how is, how is uh, this kind of perceiving yourself with others different to feedback? Have you found different ways of trying to elicit that picture? So I think feedback is actually something sort of fundamentally different. And feedback is, is, in my opinion, related really more to sort of performance and outcomes. What I'm talking about here is a perspective-taking exercise. So, for instance, I could ask both you, Scott and John, I could say, what are you noticing about me right now? What is your perception? You just met me. What do you see about me? So that I'm getting some sort of level of reflection back. And then it's up to – that's not – you, I guess you could say that's feedback, but that's not really about my performance, about some sort of outcome. That's really just me being curious about what is what parts of me are coming across and which aren't. And then I can integrate that into my self-concept. And we do this all the time when we're children and we're growing. We're always reflecting back and integrating and creating a self-concept that's always in reflection to how our parents respond to us 
to how the society responds to us. And then we make, we make a self-concept. We make an identity out of that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's important. You know, what you said, what do you see? Um, as opposed to, you know, what do you think of me or yeah. what's your opinion of me? Which I sort of then, you know, feel like I want to find the compliment, you know, the compliments and things to share. Um, but I, that delineation of what are you seeing is really important. Um, and if I can make one more comment about seeing is, and I'd be curious, John, your, your view on this from your research around mindset, but the research I've done around mindset is the first entryway in is always noticing. So you have to, you have to move to a noticing place to be able to even access an understanding of what mindset you're holding. Because mindset is so, at the core of it, it is such a deeply held worldview and belief that you can't see it yourself. So the, the entryway is always through the noticing path and getting curious. So that's why the questions around you, what are you seeing? What are you noticing? They're, they're really without judgment. They're just a perspective taking exercise so you can get closer to the root of something that you probably can't see. And of course, in the psychological realm, we call this the subject object move. So what we are subject to, we can't see. But once we make it object to us, then we're like, ah, Here's all the shades of this. Now I can make sense of it. Well, as soon as you, you kind of asked that question, you know, I started to become very aware of that toggling backwards and forward between those two perspectives, that metacognitive switching between the self and the third person. And what I've kind of learned about this is to really pay strong attention to how it makes me feel, you know, my, how my body is relating to this as well because whilst that in the past might have been regarded as a bit of a kind of new age nonsense the somatic shifts that it created tell you so much about what what you're experiencing and in in anticipation of this call and you know during having it because of you know your background the things that you you work on i am kind of quite you know elevated in terms of my physical, my biochemistry is probably, you know, kind of quite heightened because I'm excited about the conversation. So that frames all sorts of things about what I'm noticing, how receptive I am, how fast I'm thinking in response. Um, so then, but that doesn't tell me much about you at the moment, really. It's kind of like <laughs> the predictions I'm making about what yeah. I think this is going to be like. So then I have to, 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 to try and row back from that anticipation and kind of go well what am i actually seeing is you know Ciela actually that's an interesting thing to matching this yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and that's the other part of this of course too is that we're always making assumptions our brain is doing that all the time in anticipation of what's true so part of the stepping back and noticing is also checking the assumptions when I do work with leaders and we work on mindset, we talk a lot about noticing. And interestingly, you mentioned expectation because the first exercise I always do is let's do an assumption exercise. So when you walked in to this conversation, what assumption were you making? This, this person that's sitting next to you, assuming we can be in person, what assumptions are you making about them by the way they dress? And then what is those assumptions start telling you about the mindset you're holding? Because those assumptions are access points to beliefs and truths or subjective understanding that you've created. And I want to go back, if we can, to, to the notion of somatics in the body, if, if we may, because mm. 
The other thing that I think is, is essential when we're when we're dealing in this sort of complex domain, which frankly is just more and more in every place in organizations, but just in our everyday lives, is we need to create more whole-brained thinking. We need to use more of our whole brain. And what you're talking about, John, is is the part of the right side of the brain that gives us all sorts of information. It's either emotional, it's but it's all it's in our body, but it's all pre-verbal before it gets punted over to the left side of the brain and then we move it into language. And then it loses a lot of its complexity and depth because we don't have enough language, at least in the English language, for a lot of the sentiment. Um, so there's there we need to learn more and more to be able to toggle between the two sides of our brain and, and integrate. And what we've been taught and reinforced in organizations is to sit really in our left side. And if you can't name it, then it's not true. Mm. And that it does us a really big disservice for dealing with novelty because novelty really hits the right side of the brain first where you get curious and you're like, huh, this is interesting. I don't really know what it is. And then the minute you start to move it into the left side and you try to make language around it, you actually get less curious because you're trying to force mm. it into a structure. So I'm really interested right now from a neuroscience perspective around how we move and become more whole-brained to be able to access more of our mindset and more, more of the, the wholeness of our human experience so that we have more capacity to deal with uncertainty. I, I love what you're talking about here. It plays right into the conversations Scott and I are having all the time. Um, mm. Can you give us an example? So, uh, you know, you, you came from a quite an open culture at Google, or at least that's my assumption, having worked with Google. That's the locations. assumption. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, assumption. I mean, yes. and not always the case because you have highly, uh, you know, have people might fall into the intelligence trap of, uh, of believing what they, yes, they think. Yes, that's true. Um, but the, uh, the thing I'd like to just pick up on is, you know, you're in a group of people that you're meeting for the first time who you who might be really challenged to, to think like this. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can't name it. It can't be true. I love that. I think that's a really great way of phrasing it. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you have done that have been most successful to move that kind of quite skeptical mind into a place of more acceptance about this other, you know, source of information. You know, John, this is such a good question. And, and frankly, this is a grappling. I really think we have right now inside organizations. So I'm, I'm definitely open to advice and insight on this piece too. There's a few things that I, I, where I go. The first is I've, I've learned this through doing foresight work because when you're doing foresight work, you're really talking about things that are on the edge. And that is actually just really hard for people to understand. And because of that, you have to build it into a story. It can't actually just be data or logic or numbers. And that may sound counterintuitive, especially if you're in an engineering driven culture, which really is about numbers and facts. But we, we're such, we're sort of, we're so built on stories. We used to do that around the fireplace. This is how we, we make sense together, right? It's through storytelling. So I think a lot about how can we tell a story where people can see themselves inside of it? And, and that's really essential. And to, to sort of add to the storytelling piece, what the parts that can access the, the right side of the brain is metaphor. So those stories should be built through metaphor. 
because when we start thinking it, when we start working with metaphor we actually get really excited because it's fun it's like oh this thing is like that or this could look like that so using some of the the tools of metaphor i think are also really helpful to help people mm. get excited about possible futures or even to get excited about accessing other parts of maybe their emotional architecture that they're not used to accessing so though that would be sort of in the storytelling and language realm the other thing i think a lot about is and we know this when we do organizational work always is you can't push someone far, further than their brain can go so i'm always watching where is it that people are sort of getting lost in translation and maybe i want them to be five steps ahead but that's just not where we are so backing it up and i think about uh henry ford when he invented the car and i believe he called it at the time a what did he call it? it you know they had horse drawn carriages and so he called it a a, a horseless carriage i believe is what he called it so you see what he's doing is he's accessing something you know but putting a little twist on it and so i really think about where is the access point and this is this is really about the brain and the brain's capacity it's not because a human being doesn't want or doesn't desire it's that the brain disallows us to make a leap mm. like that because you don't have the neural pathways yet so what is the smallest way to get that neural pathway to move just a little bit so i'm always sort of playing with how do you do that um of course i don't think i've cracked the science on that one way we do it of course is to is through perspective taking and getting people to share their own experiences of something and then you and then you start seeing oh there's a different way to see that maybe i could see it this way too so that's one way to work with it everything you're saying is is like it's my love language i i'm i can't <laughs> wait to read the book that you're writing honestly um i want to spend a little more time on sense making in context of uncertainty mm -hmm. and the use of metaphor and storytelling so for somebody listening right now who maybe is feeling particularly uneasy in a in a world of uncertainty, what's the starting place to try to bring more sense making when maybe you just can't find the component parts to start engaging with that story? How do you how do you start how do you get those multiple perspectives? What's some advice here around around this? So I would I my my starting question would be what is what is interesting to you? about this situation not what is scary what is interesting to you about this situation hmm. and try to move us back into that place of play and interest and curiosity what 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 is striking you about this that is hmm, something's interesting here and then follow that road so this this when we talk about sense making what we're really looking at here is where are the places where we can get more curious and we talked a little bit about noticing and the same is true when in the sense making process the first part of the sense making process is always hmm what's going on here and what we need to do to be able to ask that question what is going on here is enter more into our playfulness and that's a unique human characteristic actually we have a lot of playfulness but what happens is that we lose that because of the structures and the constraints So just start 
one of the things that I think is really essential is how we ask questions and which questions we're asking. So in sense making, the question is actually essential. It's not the answer. It's the question. Right. So the question is, what, what is interesting to you about this? Not, how do we solve this? Or what are you scared about mm. here? And if you look at, there's a lot of stuff coming out about questions right now, and I'm sort of following the chain of research on questions. One of the original researchers who I think is really interesting is Hal Gregerson out of MIT, who has this whole catalytic questioning process. And he's used this with many, many organizations. And he's found that in situations where you really just can't unlock something, if you use this questioning approach, about 80% of the time, they're able to unlock the, the problem. And I think that's a really good, ev strong evidence that moving with questions is super powerful, and in particular in novel situations where there's actually real no, no real right answer per se, there's only possibility. So why can't we harness the possibility with excitement rather than um, feeling scared of it? Can we just get you to, to tell us about how you've grown and developed through this uh, work that you've done? Because, you know, our own our own mindset is like the laboratory in which all of these ideas kind of rests. What, 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 what are some of the things that you've noticed in yourself and how you've kind of built your own mindset? I'll tell you what the first thing comes to me. I think I've become softer. And, and in that, I mean more malleable. Yes, that's part of it. Like I'm, I'm more spongy. I'm like, okay, it could be this, it could be this. I allow for that more. I have an academic background and being spongy is, is, doesn't get you a PhD. <laughs> so I've sort of loosened my view on, on expertise and domain expertise. I'm, I don't even know really what that means anymore. And so I've been, uh, been I'm more malleable, more spongy. I'm more soft in that way, but honestly, I'm more soft also emotionally and with other people because I realize how hard it is right now to be a leader in an organization, but frankly, just to be a human being. And uh, we, my strong view is that building more self-compassion and compassion for others is an essential component around finding our way through. That's, um, I, I think, that. really inspiring. Uh, because I think yeah. you can't be curious and humble in the face of uncertainty unless you're willing to to kind of be kind to yourself as much as anything else. I think that's part of this, isn't it? You know, if you rest on your expertise, you have to be right or you have to be have a strong viewpoint. Um, that that makes you quite vulnerable in that situation. I, th I think so, and it, I'm I'm not arguing that we don't need to continue to get smarter and more knowledgeable, absolutely. But if you're resting on old information and that has been true in the past, it, it just frankly might not be true anymore. That speaks to the need to be, to embrace vulnerability in the face mm -hmm. of uncertain and, you know, ambiguous information where you as a leader are expected to be certain, you're expected to know what to do, to where to go and and that could that uncertainty could be working with diverse people um, in in any in all shapes of what that might look like, or uncertain situations or um, expectations that are completely new to you. Um, working in technologies or business models mm -hmm. that you don't know anything about, um, 
And I, I, I firmly believe that as a starting point, you've got to embrace that vulnerability as a first step before, otherwise you, you're going to go act out. Um, have you really thought about that in terms of the, the core of what that means? I have an interesting relationship with this, the word vulnerability. So I always like to talk about vulnerability alongside courage because vulnerability requires such, it's such an act of courageousness to be vulnerable, especially for leaders inside organizations. So I think sometimes when we talk about vulnerability, leaders won't at, don't attach to it and they think it's soft, although I'm, I'm okay mm. with that, like I just said, but they think it's soft and weak. So I always yeah. like to talk about vulnerability as a courageous act. So people are aware of how much strength it takes. So that's one piece of the puzzle around vulnerability. I, I also think for leaders in particular, we can't expect them to be vulnerable if the organizations and the context that they're working inside of don't, al don't allow for that. Because so much of us, mm. our behavior is shaped by the context. And I'm not, for, for me, I take a more sociological lens around how the organization is built in a systems lens. So the individual can't change and become more vulnerable unless the systems around it be allow for that. And the first place that I would recommend to, to sort of crack the code on the system, although there's a lot of things that need to happen, is one is just the simple expectation around leadership and changing the expectation of leadership as knowing to leadership as wayfinding. I talk about this in my book as an essential component of what I call the sensitive leader is a wayfinder. It's not a truth teller. And they're very different ways of positioning what leadership looks like. So even our language needs to change inside the organization so that those leaders can pick up the mantle of courageous vulnerability. I, I really like that definition, wayfinder. You mentioned something in there, the sensitive leader. Talk to us about the importance of sensitivity. What does that look like? So we've been actually talking around it a, a lot. And like I said, my book is about building sensitive leaders, organizations, and societies. Sensitivity is a very interesting word because there's a lot of reactions to it. And I would love, you know, when we're talking about this, God and John, to hear what reaction comes to you um, around that. What I mean by sensitivity is the wider definition. It's been relegated to being sort of emotional weakness. Uh, in, in the negative sense, or emotional acuity, if we're being generous. But sensitivity, actually, what it means is to be able to use our sensory capacities to sense and respond. And we need to become more perceptive to, to respond to novel terrain. So we've been talking all around that. We've been talking to what a sensitive leader is. And a sensitive leader, in terms of their actual practice, is wayfinding, because what they say is come along. I don't know the answer here, but we're going to perceive our way forward. So if you think about original wayfinders, what are they doing? They're getting in the boat. They're steering by starlight. They're using all the cues. They're thinking about, hmm, what's happening here in the environment? Maybe what's happening inside myself? Am I strong enough to get on this ship and go? So we're talking about a well-rounded view of this human instrument and the, using all of our sensory capacities, in, including the emotional ones, that sit inside our the right side of our brain to perceive more and to have more choices uh, in the context of the emergent future. 
But I'd love to stop here just to hear from both of you. You know, when I say sensitivity, what what do you think? What is your reaction? Well, I think two things. One um, that I can immediately feel the the reaction that you're you're describing, and I think that's it. that's good because what we're trying to do is to mm-hmm. redefine. Uh, language is so important to constantly move it forward and use it to to kind of reestablish our understanding and things. So I think that's a good thing. It also speaks to the underlying problem, which is what's the opposite? What's the the absence of sensitivity? And it's, it's you're numb. You're numb to what's what you, mm-hmm. what your senses are telling you. And an organization stumbling into the darkness, who are you know even cutting off what sensory information they do have, that's double. That's a double jeopardy. It's hard enough for all your senses to be able to figure out what's going that's on, right. let alone if you right. if you blindfold yourself at the same time. Yeah, it made me think very similarly, John. I, I the word that came to mind when you were talking was openness, um, kind of being open to what's going on in myself, but open to what's going on in, in others and what's going on around me. So it's sort of you know doesn't doesn't resonate with any kind of negativity in my mind mm. in the work that I do. It it very much feels like a strength. It feels connected to vulnerability, but it feels really connected to the open mindset. I think so too. I think it's an access point to this openness that's essential. And I think more and more about, you know, there's, there, this conversation's a little old. I'm not hearing it so much anymore. But when I was still at Google, there was a really big conversation about AI and will AI take over our jobs and what's going to happen and will AI become sentient and, and all these things. And during that time, I was thinking a lot about what is the unique human factor then? Because we're always building new tools. AI is just another new technology tool, but we've been doing that forever. We, you know, invented knives and now we're inventing AI. So, you know, we've been doing that forever. But what we always find inside of that is our unique human capacity. So I started thinking about what is our unique human capacity? And I really think it is our ability to sense and respond. We have mirror neurons. Like even over this Zoom, we can sense into pieces of each other this is such a unique human skill i don't know if you know computers will be able to take this away from us but we have to know what those unique human skills are to be able to leverage them and i don't think we know them well enough or haven't talked about them enough in the context of the future of work because we've been talking a lot more about the pragmatics not about the human condition yeah i mean i think yeah, that's absolutely right, isn't it? We, we have to keep ahead. <laughs> Organizations should be thinking about how they untap that vast set of interior resources that we all have, and that's one of them. They're actually suppressed in most organizations at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, completely uh, suppressed. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? When it, you know, what, What's in it? When's it coming out? Yeah, happy to tell you. First, I'll just say, <laughs> writing a book is a journey. <laughs> So, um, so for, for, I just, you know, it's funny when people say, what's it like to write a book? I'm like, wow, that's a big question. It's, it's a journey. So I'm, I'm, I have a manuscript. I'm on my second round of the manuscript and it'll be out early next year. The book is called Reclaiming Sensitivity. And you can see I'm using the word reclaiming. I'm not saying this is not a transformation. This is a renewal of our human ingenuity. And in the book, I talk about the idea that we're in an emergent era. Um, sometimes we talk about it as the complex era. I'm, I actually believe it's not really VUCA anymore. 
what I think actually is more and more happening is that we're in emergent terrain. And emergence is where unpatterned and novel events will continue to sort of strike more and more. You could argue the pandemic was an emergent event. Because of climate change, we're seeing all these emergent climate issues at play. And we're just going to start to see more and more of the acceleration of these emergent events. What's interesting about emergence, and this is sort of the first part of the book is setting the context of this emergent future, is that we, emergence is everywhere. And it doesn't mean have to be, it's neg- it has to be negative. We see emergence all the time in nature. So we see how there's an adaptability, like ecosystems are emergent. So ecosystems are sort of always adapting and emerging with new things to, to match and become a, and become a collective system. We see this in cities. Like it's actually really hard to plan a city because human beings are walking around doing things all the time and then it creates something. And so cities are actually emergent. So I'm very interested in if we embrace the idea that the world is becoming more emergent, how do we build organizations who can leverage that emergence. And what you get from leveraging that emergence are a few things. You get increased innovation because there's always opportunity at play. You get increased resilience because it's a sense and responding activity. And you also get increased collaboration because what happens in emergence is that it's always about the system and one person can't create a city. But if we all come together, we can create a city. So you get increased in collaboration. So that's the first part of the book is really articulating this idea of the emergent era and the value and benefits if we can embrace it. And then the second half of the book is saying, and to do that, we need to build our sensitive capacities. So how do we do that as individuals? I talk about the sensing self. We talked about that sort of the self-awareness and other awareness. And how do we build that sensing capacity, but then also how do we sense into our whole brain? Sensitive leaders, we've talked a little bit about that, becoming more wayfinding, more following, less right. And then sensitive organizations. What are the structures and systems that have to be into place to allow for this um, these leaders and these new employees to thrive? Excellent. Mm-hmm. So well, we're all looking forward to, to getting hold of uh, a copy of that next year. Um, Absolutely. I'm looking forward but- to that too. Getting <laughs> out of my hands. <laughs> Can we pre-order it now? Not is yet, it but, I, but I will tell you when it is. I appreciate that. Thanks. Okay. Hi, producer Phil here. As we're at the start of a new season of The Evolving Leader, there's no better time to subscribe to the podcast so you catch all of our new episodes. We've also started to upload some of our favourite videos from past episodes up onto YouTube, including Oliver Berkman addressing how we think about time, senior maverick at Wired magazine Kevin Kelly on what social media really wants, and Lisa Feldman Barrett explaining why we feel emotion. Just go to YouTube and search for Evolving Leader. Let's take it back to the personal for a moment and uh, get get some thoughts from you for our listeners about things that they can do, anybody could do to reclaim their sensitivity. What are some of the practices that you found most helpful for yourself? I mean, the first one is you've got to get yourself some space. And I I realize this is the penultimate ask because when we're in organizations, we're onslaughted by things that seem time sensitive or that are critical, whatnot. Uh, We need to give ourselves more spaciousness. And 
And however you can get yourself that, you need to get yourself that. And that can be as simple as carving out a 30-minute walk for yourself and getting into nature. It can be simple. I'm not talking about having to rearrange your entire schedule. But if you don't get get spaciousness, you don't have a chance of getting a, a new insight. It's just, it's just the first step. So that's mm-hmm. one. Get, get yourself some space. Find Find that for yourself. The second part is some of something that we've really talked about, but I want to emphasize, which is getting curious. So move, punting yourself out of the left side, which is outcome driven and sometimes fear based into curiosity, moving yourself back into imagination. What if, where's the magic here? What's possible? And allowing yourself to do what we do as kids, get really curious and interested. That's the second part. And then the third part is is really much more pragmatic. I think one thing that happens as we become more seasoned in our career is we get really sort of entrenched into our one area of expertise. And what we need in the emergent area era is to see wider. And to do that means that we need to be exploring other disciplines and we need to become multidisciplinary. We, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I'm super interested right now in and I had this sort of pipe dream at one point. I was like, I'm going to go now get a master's in philosophy. I'm not going to do that because I started reading the textbooks and it looks way too hard. But <laughs> it was like this this thing that happened to me where I was like, I think there's something in philosophy. I mean, that that is so far afield from what I do day to day. So follow that interest and curiosity so you become more multidisciplinary because that's where you're going to find more ways to unlock a lot of the problems that we're facing. So mm-hmm. those would be three things I'd recommend. Super helpful. What else should we be asking you, Ciela, that we haven't maybe covered? Well, I'll just tell you what I'm interested in right now is this idea of truth. And um, and I think we've we've set up organizations and we're, we're and we've set up leaders to really fail because they're expected to know the answer and to know the truth. So what I'm really curious about right now is how we unwind that mindset and make it okay that there's subjective understanding and come together and share all of our subjective understandings so that we can come together to what we call sort of in the psychological realm, an intersubjective reality. Because that's where we make progress is where we, we all have a sort of subjective understanding. We come together and we make agreements about the future that we want to have that I think is the right type of conversation to be having versus what is the truth? What is the right way? Mm. So what I, I'm very, very curious right now about how we can move organizations to embrace that as, as the way forward versus putting leaders in a really compromising situation, the, this idea of knowing. And some of that comes from this whole history of knowledge work where we've created this idea that to be a knowledge worker means you have deep domain expertise and you know. Of course, knowledge means knowing. I want us to think about knowing as, as, an, a, as an activity, a collective activity, versus I'm the smartest one in the room. And yeah. what, what's, what, what that's interesting for me is that uh, in that is that what people know in terms of domain expertise might for a lot of very senior leaders be quite old because they've lost mm-hmm. connection with the doing and they're now into this managing and, and decision-making 
uh, and leadership space where you know they're, they're, they're what got them there is probably I'm, I'm not saying it's stale but it's you know it's probably not you know, at the cutting edge so they're reliant on on people for that but they're also the knowledge that they have or the information they're using is largely derived through proxies they're not actually getting real world data from customers or you know so that that subjective experience is is pretty impoverished i i completely agree with you i think it's actually putting in structures where you have sense making forums and activities and i i sometimes get pushback on this because it's like that's a that's going to take time like yes yeah. but it's going to accelerate you in the end because what's going to happen is you come together here's my subjective understanding of this here's my experience here's what a customer told me and you go around and then you're like wow now i actually have a really big purview and this is what i call perceptual work i think right now we just need to get in get more and more people doing perceptual work oh what do we perceive and then we perceive together and we create this understanding that's so rich and so deep so nuanced that then we can actually make some really interesting business choices that have a much higher chance of success than one person making a choice with abstract information. So this can also become a structural choice around how leaders lead, where they actually create forums like this. And I know of one organization whose name I, I can't recall, but who regularly does this in their C-suite meetings and they identified this pandemic happening long before it actually became an issue. And they made plans beforehand because they were having these sense-making conversations where people would be like, huh, I heard on the news there's something this, maybe we should pin that and because there might be a business implication. Let's bring that to the table maybe next time. And they, they identified and saw what was coming. And then they, because of the business moves that they made, they actually fared pretty well through the pandemic. But we, we, I think what we're really talking about is the mindset. I mean, we're talking about the deep, deep belief around how organizations are supposed to be. So it's always uh, the, the tricky question because there's no ideal answer to it, but um, what, what, which organizations are you seeing that are moving along down this path um, and, and adopting some of the things that you're talking about? I don't think it's any organizations writ large. I think it's pockets. And in foresight work, we are always looking for edge cases. Um, so there are some edge cases or just like for me, specific leaders that I've worked with that are quite interesting. Um, one organization who came very early to the table and it has been sort of interesting around the future of work and some of the choices that they've made as Salesforce. And if you look at them, they, and I was working with them at the time, they went very early on that we're gonna have success from anywhere and they're, they're quite good at marketing. So they knew they needed to come forward with something. But what's happened is that they backed this up with some really interesting moves. They have something called the ranch where they create, they have this community center where people come together and they've been very clear that we're going to build this connection and community. So they're starting to, to do some things that look, that are pretty interesting around the future of work and thinking about how do we change our mind? about the structures of work. So I'd look to them if someone wants sort of an example. Of course, not everything's perfect and some of it is, you know, some of it is, is just what's written, not what's, what's, what's actually really happening. And then the other organization which I, I follow and I think is interesting is Automatic because they were remote 
long before, and they've published a lot of different things about sort of lessons from remote work. This is really speaking sort of to the flexibility in the remote piece. But what's interesting about that is they're so for, they're so far along on the journey that they can help other organizations anticipate. Because from my point of view, flexibility is that is actually not the future of work. That's that's not really the, the the conversation. The conversation is what does it mean to have a vocation, and how do we move beyond industrial era logic? That is the conversation. Mm-hmm. So we need to be looking to organizations who've been doing flexibility long enough that we're starting, and then we look at what other habits have they broken that are sort of the industrial holdover. But I'm interested if you have ones that that come to mind for you that are shining examples. I feel like that's a, it's such a hard question at this juncture that I would, it's really, I think it's almost disingenuous to point to someone because every organization has to figure it out now for themselves. And that's actually the work. So people want to say, what's the best practice? I'll just follow that. And McKinsey has built a whole company on teaching you to do that. Nothing wrong with McKinsey. They're super bright and smart and that's worked at the time, but that doesn't, that's not what works anymore. Yeah, I think we're in the same place in that we yeah. see these pockets of progressive thinking and, and experimentation, but we don't wouldn't see any organization in that space, you know, having adopted it. And I think it's I think your point about best practice or exemplars in a particular field like this, this is such a dynamic thing that even if you look at an organization that built its culture around something quite, you know, innovative and different like Spotify or Klarna or something, you know, that's work in progress and it keeps on evolving and changing. So it's not one thing. It'll be very different from the case study to the reality just because of the speed of change. That's right. And I, I, for a long time, the thing that I work with clients on is helping them build next practice, which which is contextual. It's always evolving. It's emergent in nature. And... And I think sometimes clients get really excited about this because it's like, wow, we can create something on our own that is uniquely ours, that evolves with us. And that actually builds resilience versus trying to overlay a best, best practice. When was that a best practice, right? It could have been best practice mm-hmm. five years ago. Maybe it's not now. So it's really a recipe for always being behind if you're adopting best practice. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm not actually a big fan in this moment of benchmarking and best practice because I think it's it just doesn't work. I agree. Well, I feel like uh, this is the conversation that I needed to be part of today. So yeah. thank you for thank you, for Scott. coming on and sharing everything that you did. And I'm really supremely interested in getting your book when it comes out. So thank you. Thank Scott. you. Yeah, me too. And what a great way to open see- season five of the Evolving Leader. Mm-hmm. Um, Ciela, thank you so much. A real pleasure. Nice to meet you both. And for our listeners, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?